Well, occasionally we encounter moments in life that seem otherworldly. Maybe you've encountered some of these. Maybe it's been whenever you've eaten incredible food, right? You, you taste something that's just so extravagant and sweet. When it hits your taste buds, it's like this is as if heaven has hit my taste buds. It's so good. Or maybe it's been something where you've gone and you've seen the scenery of mountains or uh, you've seen just some amazing landscape. That has just, it's still as if the mental picture is ingrained in your brain, that you can close your eyes. You can see just this amazing landscape. You can see these mountains that are just before you that make you feel so small. It feels otherworldly. Or maybe you've experienced like a musical performance. You went to Taylor Swift, and you're like, man, I experienced all that T-Swift had to offer and more, right? Well, hey, one of those instances... It surely happened in 2015 at the CMAs. Maybe you know the instance that I'm about to talk about. It's just this past week, there was a musician, Luke Combs, that was on a podcast with Joe Rogan. And he called this performance an earth-shattering, earth-wakening type of performance. And the moment is when Timberlake, Justin Timberlake, and Chris Stapleton performed their songs, Tennessee Whiskey, and drink you away. Anybody seen this? Anybody watched the video of this? If you didn't watch it, yeah, okay, just a few of you. Here's, I, I come back to this all the time. I love this performance, all right? I wasn't there, but it was a stroke of musical brilliance. Let me set the scene for you, all right? Here's, here's what happens. All right, so the CMAs, as you probably know, they're held in downtown Nashville. I think it changed maybe just this past year, but before this year, they're always in downtown Nashville, so music capital, not maybe of just this country, but even in the grand landscape of the entire world, one of the music capitals of the world. It's in the heart of the region of what, where both Justin Timberlake and Chris Stapleton come from, so you know that they have all these fans that are going to be there that are ready to hear these two perform. The room is full of celebrities. I mean, they're dressed to the nines. I mean, they got the tuxedos on, they got the ballroom gowns on, they are looking fresh. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they came ready to party. You have all of this going on, and then you have uh, basically Chris Stapleton's arrival party. At this point in time, he was just sort of like a name that was known off in the distance, but this was his arrival party. He won three different awards this night, the very first time that he had ever worn any, won any type of musical award. And then you just, you have the musical talent that's on the stage. I mean, everybody knows Justin Timberlake, and now you know Chris Stapleton. Their voices are incredible, right? I mean, you have the musicians that are on the stage. They're the elite of the elite. And this musical performance happens. As they start performing, they, they just have the crowd in the palm of their hands. I mean, the brilliance that's taking place with the instruments and the voices and the lights and everything that's happening Justin Timberlake and Chris Stapleton, they just have the whole audience in the palm of their hands. They're bouncing back and forth. They're trading off lines back and forth. I mean, it's just incredible. You have Keith Urban. If you go watch the entire TV footage of what happens, Keith Urban has his phone out and he's recording their performance. I mean, can you imagine you being on stage and Keith Urban like videoing on his phone what you're doing? That's exactly what is happening. You had the entire group of Lady Annabellum singing at the top of their lungs as the whole entire performance comes to, for, comes to an end. 
their arms are up in the air, like in victory. I mean, it's incredible. And then you have this guy's face. I mean, if you do something that makes a person with that kind of face, you know that you just, everybody's putty in your hands. Well, that's exactly what happens. And it was just this thing of glory that happened. I mean, it's just one of those moments that people still to this day, as I was talking about Luke Combs, giving witness to. It was an earth-shattering moment when it comes to music history. Now, whenever we experience moments like this, here's where our heads go. Our heads go to heaven. Here's the, the question that we have. Is that what heaven's going to be like? Is heaven going to be, a, is that just like a foretaste of what heaven's going to be like? I mean, we, we think about the scenery, and we think about all the outfits, we think about all the lights, we think about the seats, we think about the red carpets. We, I mean, we think about all the scenery, just it looks so luxurious and luscious. And then you think about the people that are in the room, it's the who's who that's in the room. You have all the beauty, you have all the talent, you have all the power, you have all the prominence. I mean, it's just the who's who that's in the room. Is this what heaven is going to be like? And then you even have the experience. The excitement that takes over the room. The joy that even as you watch it over the screen, you can just feel the elation as it's popping out of the screen as you're watching this musical performance. The victory. I mean, people having their arms and their like up in the air at the end of a song. It's a song. And people's arms are like as if they've just won something. We, we hear and we experience moments like this. Even if this isn't your moment, you have moments where it feels like heaven has broken through in human history. And it leads you to the question, is this what heaven is going to be like? Well, as we're looking at the story that we're in tonight, we get one of those moments in human history. And look, heaven actually does break through into human history. We get a first-hand account about a moment in human history where heaven breaks through. And the challenge with this story is that we are all too familiar with it. When it comes to the Christmas season, you've probably already heard this story told in some form or fashion. We sang about it just a moment ago. You've maybe read it to your kids. Maybe you've read it to your, your nieces or your nephews. Maybe it, it, you've, you've interacted with the story at some point, even on December 10th. We're 15 days away from Christmas. You've probably interacted with this. And the problem of hearing a story like this that's just so familiar is that it robs the story of the glory that the story tells about heaven breaking through in human history. And so here's what I want to do tonight as we look through the story. We're going to walk through the story. I mean, we're going to do that. So here's the points that we're going to look at. We're going to have the sight of glory. We're going to have the sign of glory. And we're going to have the song of glory. Now, here's what I want to ask of you. Even though this is a story you have heard time and time again, here's what I would love to ask you to do. Try to listen to the story as if you're hearing it for the very first time. Approach this story as if you've never heard it 
before. And here's my prayer as we do that. As we work through the story, the side of glory, the sign of glory, the song of glory, hearing it with fresh ears. My prayer is that we would experience the glory of God in a story like this as if we had never experienced it before. And I believe that if we experience the glory of God that is in this passage, it will transform the way that you live. And that's where we're headed. But for us to start, we need to begin where Luke starts, and it's the sight of glory. We see this in verses 8 through 9. Here's what it says. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. So here we see the sight of glory. Luke reports that the glory of the Lord shone around them. Here's what the the language in Luke's day would have translated to those that were reading this. It would have literally meant that they were that uh, it was an investment with a halo. The glory of God was like a halo that came around the shepherds in the field where they were. They were literally swallowed by the glory of God. It was so pronounced, it hit them so strikingly that it was as if they were swallowed up by the glory of God. That's the picture of what's going on here. This language is only used one other time throughout the rest of the Bible, and it happens at another outbreak of heaven in human history. As the Apostle Paul, who was Saul at the time, was on his way to Damascus, he's walking down a road, and we see heaven break through in a human history. And the only other time is whenever Paul sees the glory of Jesus that meets him on the road to Damascus. What is said about that encounter is that the glory of the face of Jesus shone and it literally blinded Paul on his knees. He's swallowed up in the glory of God. That's the experience of glory that we find here in this story. Now what's shocking about this experience of glory is three things. The time, the place, and the people where heaven breaks through in human history. There's absolutely nothing glorious or spectacular about the time, the place, and the people by which heaven breaks through in human history. All right, think about the time. It happens during the night watch. As everyone else is asleep, No one else is awake. Is when God shows up and heaven breaks through in human history for just a few to see. Nothing glorious. The place, it happens in fields just outside of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is no more than 2,000 people. So not only was it in the middle of the night, But it was even a place, if heaven breaks through, there's only 2,000 people that are just a few kilometers away. This is not the place that even if you're showing up at midnight for the world to see heaven break through in the world, Bethlehem's not the place. It's irrelevant. And then you have the people. 
The people that the glory of the Lord shone around, literally swallowed them up, was a group of shepherds. Uneducated, with zero social power, is the audience by which the glory of God appears and breaks through in human history. Here's what this would be like. This would be like God showing up at midnight to, to some ranch hands in Winchester, Missouri. If you're like, I don't, I've never heard of Winchester, I don't know of a rancher, and I have no idea what midnight even looks like out in the middle of country, you're getting my point. There's absolutely nothing glorious about what is taking place here. If it's us, we're making our arrival If we are in God's shoes, we're making heaven's breakthrough into human history a moment that no one will ever forget. Here's what we would do. It would be at prime time, when everybody is awake. I mean, every screen can can view into this arrival that we are breaking through into human history. If we're in God's shoes, prime time, where all people can see. It's happening like at a parade after the Cardinals win the World Series, right in smack dab in the middle of downtown. And who's at that? All of St. Louis royalty, right? You're talking Yachty, Wayno, Pujols, John Hamm, Jenna Fisher, I mean, Brett Hulls there, Nelly. Like, the who's who of St. Louis, they would be there, right? That's not what God does. You know why we would make it the show-stopping event of human history because we need it. We would make it a show-stopping experience because we need all of our neighbors to see. We need all of our family to see. The stamp of approval that comes from the elite of the elite that are around us, the people that we want our names attached to, we need it in the smack dab of middle day so all can see because we need their approval in our life. We need their uh, recognition that comes with such a show-stopping experience. We need all of this. But here's what God is communicating to us through the breakthrough of heaven in this particular story. God doesn't need it. God's glory does not need the time, the place, or the people of significance because he's communicating something about himself and the glory that comes from him. What happens with God is that before his very feet, when it comes to time, when it comes to place, when it comes to people, all are on the same playing field. It's as if midnight is midday before God. It's as if the Taj Mahal is the fields of Bethlehem. It is as if the world's leaders are as significant as the shepherds because God's glory is so big and so powerful and so prominent that he does not need the stamp of approval from anything in this world. Here's what Luke is communicating to us. The moment does not make God's glory. God's glory makes the moment. Step back and think about that. 
How big is God that he is not dependent on anybody or anything in this world when it comes to the announcement of his glory? God is saying, it's my stamp of approval that makes the day, not your stamp of approval that signs significance to my glory. begins to change some of the sentiment around the story, doesn't it? Not only do we get this unique audience, unique time, unique place where heaven breaks through, but we also get a sign of glory. See this in verses 10 through 12. Here's what it says. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Verse 11. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah. He's the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. So let's just progress through the story here. The angel of the Lord visits the shepherds in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Places and people that are irrelevant and insignificant. And they are terrified. They're terrified because the glory of God is like no other glory that we experience here in this world. It is so bright. It is so pure. It is so otherworldly that the shepherds can't recognize anything that can compare to it. And the only response they can muster up is fear. But this isn't a fear that's going to lead to their demise because the angel comes and brings a great announcement to them. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This is a great pronouncement of a birth that symbolizes and is connected to another great birth that had happened just a few decades before this. Caesar Augustus was born. At the birth of Caesar Augustus, nearly identical words were shared at the birth of this great king. It was good news. Another word for that, a gospel, a good news, a gospel is brought to you that brings great joy that will be for all people that a Savior has been born into this world. Those are exact words that are used about the announcement of the birth of Caesar Augustus. And Luke is making strong connections here, saying the same thing that was said just a few decades earlier about the Savior that is now before you, the King, the prominent one in all of the world, the very words that were used about his very birth, look, are being said about this baby that was just born. And he goes a step further because as he's making this pronouncement about the birth of this baby that was born in Bethlehem, he doesn't stop at Savior. He actually uses three titles in order to describe who this baby is that was born into the world. He uses Savior, he uses Messiah, and he uses Lord. Savior is speaking to the call of Jesus to deliver his people from tyranny. That's who Jesus is. That's who this baby that is born. He's born into this world to be a savior that removes tyranny 
from his people. He's also the Messiah. This reflects Jesus as the promised one. Last week we looked at, at the, in the song of Zechariah, he brings and he sings about this promised one that is coming from Genesis 3.15, the one that's going to eradicate the world from all of the sin and darkness that has plagued it since the first sin that entered into the garden. That very one has come into the world. And then Lord reflects the authority and the power that Jesus possesses. So Luke is speaking very highly about this baby that was just born in Bethlehem. Comparing it to the power of the world. The power of the world. But then he gives a sign in verse 12 and it's this. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Now, at the announcement after what has just been proclaimed by the angel to these shepherds. The big announcement about who this baby is with the comparisons that have been made, the titles that have been given, they're expecting a big sign. But the sign that they receive feels shocking. Is that there's a baby that's wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. That a baby would be described as being wrapped tightly in cloth is speaking about the baby's incapability. It is able to be contained by just a strap of cloth that's wrapped around it that it literally has no power to do anything beyond that strap around its body. And even more than that, this baby is going to be found in a manger the feeding trough of animals. As I was studying for this, a pastor described it as a stinking trough, one that doesn't get cleaned, that's just slop thrown into a manger so the animals can feed. That is where this baby is to be found. It's the low of the low. After an announcement that's given to the shepherds, the sign seems so humiliating. So the question is, what is God doing here? The response is that God is flexing his glory. How in the world could God be flexing his glory? If he's making these types of comparisons, he's giving these types of thoughts, why would he have such a lowly entrance into the world? At, we all have experience, we have, we have like social Instagram, like celebrities that we follow. We all have TV stars, we have movie stars that we follow. There's moments where they ascribe their name to something and it goes viral. One that ha- recently happened just this last year was the Jennifer Aniston salad. Anybody remember that? This is 2022, all right? Here's, here's you probably don't even remember it. <laughs> All it was is that you have like these cucumbers and these chickpeas and pistachios and feta that are like all thrown together and it went viral and everybody started eating it and here you are at the end of 2023 and you've probably forgotten it. The famous of the famous can ascribe their name to something and it goes viral for a moment. But here's what it communicates about the glory of God. That over 2,000 years ago, God could send his one and only son. 
in the lowliest possible means. And a God of such richness and luxury and glory could ascribe the gift to the world in a place like a manger and make it an icon. Because here's what happens every single Christmas. You pull out the toy set and the lawn ornaments that reenact the manger that the birth of the Savior was laid in. You set it up in your house over 2,000 years later. Celebrities ascribe their name to something and it's gone in a moment. The God of the universe sends his gift into the world and places it in the lowliest of spots that any human could possibly imagine and becomes an icon. He's flexing his glory. Who among you could do such wonders as God could do that he could send the most prized gift into all of human history, lay it down, wrapped in a cloth, lying in a manger, and it becomes something that is known and recognized across the world for thousands of years later. Only God's glory could do that. It's ascribing not only power as we looked at, at the sight of God's glory, but the timelessness of God's glory. It knows no end. It's a story that will be remembered for all of eternity. The way that God entered into this world at the first coming of Jesus Christ, that he's laid low in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloth, that he can't move, he doesn't have the strength or the power to break through, that he's laid down where the worst of the animals Get their food. It's not clean. That's where the Savior of the world is and is remembered for all eternity. Only God could do that. There's no other person in human history that has ascribed that type of power, that type of significance that can last for forever. But it happens at the coming of Jesus. Only the God of glory could inject worth into something like a manger and make it an icon. But look, you have the side of God's glory. You have the sign of God's glory. But then you get the song of God's glory. We see this in verses 13 and 14. Suddenly, there is a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Luke drew a comparison to the announcement of Jesus in verses 10 through 11 to that of Caesar Augustus. And Augustus' birth would have come with all that you and I would have imagined that Jesus' birth would have come from. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar. He was adopted as his own son. He was ascribed to glory before he even knew his own name, could speak and utter a word. All the pomp and the flair would have gone along with the announcement of his birth. But what we see here, and I think Daryl Bach, he's a, a, a Bible scholar, puts it like this. Jesus may be lying in an animal trough, but heaven is present at his birth. And you can't say that about Augustus. Here's what we need to see. At the sight of God's glory, 
the time and the place and the people. There's nothing that can stamp the approval of worth on God's glory. Only he provides the definition of it. The sign of God's glory can be the lowliest of low because he's the one that has the power and the timelessness to bring lasting worth to the announcement that happens. But no one can take the stage at the announcement of his birth. There's nobody that is in this world that can actually take the place of God himself to make the announcement that must be needed for the arrival of heaven's gift to the world. Only God can do that. We all know and understand the significance of an introduction. When you think about the presidential inauguration, you have the who's who that are there, that are bringing the announcements, that are bringing the prayers, that are doing all the things that are announcing the arrival of our next fearless leader. We even do this in the church. You have whenever a new pastor comes in, you have the, this well-recognized name that comes and preaches the installment of this new pastor into the life of the church. From the high to the low in our country and across the globe, we understand the importance of an introduction. And the herald that sings about the arrival of heaven's gift to the world can only be God himself. No one can share the stage. Heaven is present at the gift of heaven and its breakthrough in this world, proclaiming the good news about Jesus being here. Now, that's the herald. You also need to pay attention to the content of the song. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people he favors. That phrase is not what you would expect. (laughs) Who are the people that God favors? We have to look at the rest of Jesus' story. Who does Jesus draw near to? Who are the people that he draws in? Who's the company that Jesus keeps? Well, Jesus' reputation is that he eats and he drinks with tax collectors and sinners. He doesn't draw near to the religious leaders. He doesn't draw near to the king of God's people. Jesus, through the sign of the manger, shows us who he came to associate himself with, which were those that were the betrayers of God's people, and the least of God's people. And God declares peace for them, meaning that those who are far off from God are brought near to God, not because they earned it or deserved it, but because of what Christ is going to do on their behalf. They have peace with the living God. At the announcement of his birth, only heaven itself can make the announcement. But the news is for everyone. Shocking to the world. Now here's a question I want us to wrestle with as we kind of enter into the the downward swing of this. Why are we so drawn to glory? 
Why do we remember the moments where it feels like heaven breaks through in human history? Why is this a song in an instance that's reminded in at least two of the four Gospels? Why is this something, why is there such a deep down craving inside of us for glory? Well, there's another pastor that puts it like this. We're all glory junkies. Here's what he says. Admit it. You're a glory junkie. That's why you like 360 between the legs slam dunk. He's an older guy, so some of the language is a little off, you know. So, or that amazing hand-beaded formal gown, or the seven-layer triple chocolate mousse cake. It's why you're attracted to the hugeness of a mountain range or the multi-hued splendor of the sunset. You're hardwired by your creator for a glory orientation. It is inescapable. It's in your genes. Here's what he's making reference to. You're created in the image of the living God. So that you have a deep down craving for glory tells you exactly who you stem from. You are made in the image of the living God. Now the problem is, is where we try to turn to find the cravings that reside so deep inside of us and find their fulfillment. So the question is, like, if, if we are these glory junkies, if that is a signal that we are created in the very image of God, as we see in the book of Genesis, then to whom do we turn? If we have these deep cravings that even the greatest things of this world just don't seem to quite satisfy those cravings that are inside of us, then where do we turn? We see the answer through the shepherds here in this story. Because as the story goes on, after they receive the song, as they receive the announcement, they're so befuddled by what has been shared with them that they're like, we have to go check this out for ourselves. So they go into Jerusalem. They're looking for the sign, and they, since they're shepherds, and so they work with animals, they know exactly where to go. And as they're going, looking from manger to manger, they find Mary and Joseph that are next to baby Jesus, and they go in and they share all the news that's been shared with them. The small group that is in this manger... They share all that they've heard from the angels. And they, the, what the Bible tells us, what it records, is that they are bewildered by what has been shared with them. And the response after they've seen Jesus for themselves, we see in verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which they had just been told. Where you turn in order for the deep cravings in your heart and your soul to be satisfied as the Son of Glory. Jesus is the Son of Glory. The cravings that are inside of the shepherds are only fulfilled once they've laid their eyes on Jesus. And as they lay their eyes on Jesus, what happens is they leave. They're glorifying and they're praising God for all that they've seen and heard because the object that is the baby that's, that's swaddled in cloths and lying in a manger has been seen with their very own eyes. He's the son 
of glory. Here's what the rest of the Bible gives witness to about this baby that was born lying in a manger. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed His glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's what James, the half-brother of Jesus, had to say about Jesus himself in James 2.1, that He's the Lord of glory. I mean, you could stop there because if you have a sibling and you declare them the Lord of glory... Like, what more of a witness do you need? I'm never telling my brother Chris that he's the Lord of glory. I grew up around. I know what that kid did. James knows. He knows everything that happened in Jesus' life, and he says, yeah, he's the Lord of glory. The Apostle Paul, who was caught up in the glory of Jesus on the road to Damascus, says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews, one of the books that speaks most highly about who Jesus was, says this in Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. The one you turn to in order for the glory junkie that you are, the deep down cravings that you have in your soul to be satisfied is the sun of glory. And here's how we do this. How do we turn to the Son of Glory? We live for His glory. Here's what this means, all right? It's all about orientation, all right? It's all about the orientation of your heart. Christ's glory becomes the orientation of your life. Some Christians have tried to summarize, like, what's the chief end of man? What's the main purpose for what man has been placed in this world for? And here's the summary of it. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Another way of saying this is your life is a lot like this earth. Think about the planet earth. The way that the earth works is that at the very core of earth is the center, this magnetic field that causes all that orbit around it to stay and function and to move and have orientation. Your life is a lot like the, orient, like the makeup of the world. You have a core. You have a center that all of your life orients around. Everything about your life, there's a core that all of your world orbits around it. Before Jesus, the reality for all of us, because this is what the Bible tells us, the very core of who we are and all that we have lived for is ourself. Before we come to Jesus, our whole entire orientation is all about us. We live for us. We talk about us. We try to get things for us. We try to make a name for us. Everything about your life before Jesus is all about you. And the testimony of all of human history when we live that way, is that we are bankrupt of joy. We can never seem to wrap our hands around joy and keep it when we are the center of our life. But whenever we orient our life around a glory that's not our own, a glory that's powerful, that's timeless, 
that can share no glory with another. The stage cannot be shared with another. When we orient our glory, our life around that glory, you get joy. You find fulfillment. And the only one that can bear the weight of that type of significance is the glory of Jesus. The only one that you are meant to live for in terms of glory is the God who created you, the God that entered into this world, and the one that pronounced the glory of Jesus as he died on the cross in your place. That is the only glory that can bear the weight of your joy for the rest of eternity. And here's what this looks like, all right? Just consider three W's with me, all right? Here's how you turn and orient your life towards this Jesus that bear, can bear the weight of your joy and the, the weight of glory. Consider your witness, all right? We live in a world that's all about self-promotion. It's all about advancing your own name. I mean, you can look to Instagram and you can find people that have made a name for themselves. I mean, I follow a guy that just, he was a teacher that he started all these personal fitness stuff and now he has all these followers and he has all this acclaim and he just, he's a, I'm made myself. All about self-promotion. And I'm looking at it because like, I need to get my dad bod out of here, right? But we look at that and it's like, man, if I just, I could do that. I can t- his story could be my story. If I just find my niche and I use these platforms to build a name for myself, I, a self-promotion, the joy that he seems to have, maybe it could be mine. And so all of life, when we look at this, all of our orientation is just around ourselves. There's a, a comedian that kind of put it like this, that we live in a day and age that we just, it's all about us, us, us. We just talk about us. He talked about going out to eat with this other couple. And this couple is like, here's something that you need to know about me. Here's something I like. Here's this, this, and this about me. And as they get about 30 minutes into the conversation, like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. All I've been doing is talking about myself. I, I haven't given you any time to talk. Let me, Let me give you some, what do you think about me? That's our natural orientation in this life. We think, man, if I can, if everything is just about me, I will be happy. But look, the statistics that are around social media, especially for the teenagers in this world, are catastrophic. Their significance, their view of themselves is at an all-time low. Look, whenever your life begins to orient around around not your promotion, but around the promotion of the one that you are meant to live for, you begin to find significance and joy. Think about your work. We only work when we're watched. We do as little as possible for as much as possible. You can see this in commercials, I mean, especially after COVID. The commercial, you've probably seen this, where there's a guy that's out in his above-ground pool, and he's got the floating device that his computer is setting on, he's business on top, he's floating on the water, the call ends, he closes the computer, and he's just lounging. It's like, that's glory. That's joy. That's what I want. 
But then you look at what the trend is. It's like everybody's dragging people out of working at home on their computers where they think that they aren't being watched by anybody, but it's actually bankrupting our society. It doesn't live up to the billing. Here's what we get in view of the opposite of that. Whenever you look at the orientation around God and his glory in our life, it's that Whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of Christ, meaning that we are constantly working as if we are living for the joy of the approval of our God. Not that you're trying to earn that approval, but you're living from the approval that you've received in Christ Jesus. And it affects your work. You're no longer the lazy bum, but you're now the one that has the work ethic and the reputation that when people think about who do we need more in this workplace, your name begins to be the one that they spout off because you're the one that is responsible. You're the one that brings value, significance to the work. Look, and it's not the promotion of your name that you're living for, though. You reap the rewards of it. When your life begins to shift on its axis and the orientation is no longer about you, but is now about the one that you're created to live for, though it changes your work ethic and it changes the way that you live. And then consider this last one. Consider your worship. All right, think about this gathering. All right, here's what I hear often. When we come in and I'm hearing just like feedback about the service, Sometimes this is what I hear. Maybe it's not about here. Maybe it's about a different place. But the question is, what did I get out of it? What did this bring in terms of benefit to my own life? Hey, what if when we gathered as a church that this gathering wasn't about you, but was actually about the glory of God? What if Whenever you came in here, it wasn't what nugget did I receive out of the teaching or what song that I truly love was actually played or who stepped out of their seat and came and spoke to me. What if none of, I'm not saying that none of those things are important. We want all those things for you. Absolutely. All right. But what if it wasn't the primary factor that whenever you left this place was what you evaluated the worth of the service on? What if your evaluation of the service was, did God get my glory? What if your evaluation was, did he get my heart longing, genuine, authentic response to the good news that he has done everything for me in Christ Jesus, and because of what Jesus has done, I gave him my all, I gave him the glory that he is deserving and worthy of. Here's what would happen for you. You would leave this place filled with joy. Look, the glory of God. No one can ascribe it its value. No one can outdo the time. There is a never-ending time to the glory of God. No one can share the stage in terms of the announcement of his glory. This is what we see in this story. And look, he's shared the glory with you. 
that you get to enjoy him by living for his glory and you get to enjoy him forever. That is the gift of God. So here's what we're trying to do as we're winding this down, all right? We're trying to give a space for response at the end of each of our service, a space for us to remember, a space for us to repent, and a space for us to rejoice. We're gonna take communion here in a moment for us to remember. Remember that Jesus has done everything for us. The glory of Jesus shines for us every time that we take communion together. We get to repent by praying. Look, this isn't just like the sorrowful understanding of repentance. We get to look at who Jesus is and say, I want to live and orient my life towards you. And so we're going to pray that we would Jesus would be our pattern in this life, that Jesus would be our pardon in this life, and that Jesus would be our power in this life. And then after we've prayed for about five minutes, we're going to stand up and we're going to sing and we're going to rejoice at the coming of Jesus, knowing that he's coming back again. And then we'll conclude by drinking hot chocolate. It's going to be glorious, all right? So let's pray so we can step into these movements. God, we ask that all that we've worked through tonight, 